Now, will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. The title of the message today, All You Need Is Love, Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. Now, before I get started, I'm not getting an image on the back screen up there, and uh, there we go. Thank you very much, and that kind of helps me to know where we are during the service. Well, I'm burdened for the state of the church in America. Not just saying that. This isn't just a, you know, something to make up a sermon. I'm also burdened even more because it's closer to me for the state of the church in Tallahassee. If we were to survey the church, excuse me, if we were to survey the church, let's say the evangelical church in Tallahassee to determine what is needed most. If we put out a survey and said, what is needed most in churches today? There would be a lot of interesting answers. And let me say something to you about those answers. Many of those answers would be based on style. They would not be based on substance they would be based on style. Well, I believe in Tallahassee, we need a church like this. I believe in Tallahassee, we need a church like this. We have, that is, we, the believers, for the most part, not blanket, none of these are blanket statements, but they are mostly true, like the uh, Guy said in Princess Bride, it's not dead, just mostly dead. These things are mostly true, that we have tripped and fallen face first in the idea that a good church is made up of the things that we like, that a good church is made up of what we want, that a good church is made up of what we think is cool or comfortable. And before I go any further, let me say this, that it really doesn't matter what the preference is or the style is. I could stand in any church in Tallahassee today and preach this sermon, and it have equal application because we are in Tallahassee equal opportunity offenders when it comes to wanting what we want. Sometimes... There are those that believe, well, what we really need is a cool band. There are others that say, no, what we really need are the hymns and an organ. There are others that would say, I think if you had what the church really needed today, it'd be gospel singing, be gospel music. Or you could name whatever else you might name stuff that you consider to be preferred or stuff that you consider to be comfortable. And if you were a representative body, a cross-section of the Church of Tallahassee, and I were to ask you what's needed for a, a great church, you would give those kinds of answers. However, if you go to the church in Iraq, 
if you go to the church in Syria, if you go to the church in many parts of Africa and other places around the world, some places that I named this morning as watching us by live stream, if you go to those places, I suspect that you'd get a much different answer than you'd get from the average believer in Tallahassee. When your faith can get your head cut off, the picture is a lot clearer as to what really matters. The church in America, the church in Tallahassee, appears to have decided that a foundation of relevance is of greater value than the foundation of truth. Here is the problem with that. Relevance is relative, but truth is absolute. What difference does it make, to quote Hillary? What difference does it make? Think about this before you start getting all excited. What difference does it make If the preacher wears a coat and tie or jeans and a t-shirt, what difference does it make? Does either make the truth more true? Does either make the Bible more Bible? People aren't losing their heads today because of wardrobe. There's no one that has had their head cut off because they won't wear a coat and tie or because they do wear a coat and tie. People are having their heads cut off today over the unmovable stand for Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we have seen, we have seen scenes so much like the one that's on the screen right now so often that we have become numbed to it. We still think that a good church is made up of what we want, while other people are losing their heads for the name of Jesus Christ. What's happening to the church around us? Why is it that we have started shopping the church rather than committing to it? How is it that believers can fly from one church to another like a flock of blackbirds changing trees, then fly to another, and then another, and then back to the first tree? I've been a pastor of this church for more than 23 years. And will be for some time to come. By the way, let me just say this. Two or three of you have said little things like, we think that you're thinking about retiring and stuff like that. Well, number one, what pastor would retire looking as good as I do? Secondly, I promise you that I'll give you one full year's warning before I retire. How's that? All right? I will give you one full year's warning before I retire. 
and that is not going to happen tomorrow, the next day, or any time that I believe in uh, uh, the next few weeks and months, and even a few years, actually. I will say this, though, while I'm on it. This church needs, and all churches need, pastors who have a vision and pastors who will stand for the truth and pastors who will lead. And when I no longer have vision and I no longer stand for the truth and I no longer have the will or ability to lead, I'll be done. But I'll let you know a year in advance. Is that a deal? If if that's okay with you, if it's a deal that I give you a year in advance notice, will you stop thinking about it? Okay, will you? Everybody nod your head, blink, do something. All right, good, that's done. <clears throat> I've been pastor of this church for more than 23 years. So I can tell you a thing or two about the state of the church <clears throat> in Tallahassee. To a great measure, and again, this is not blanket, but it is a great deal true. To a great measure, The church in Tallahassee is flighty, uncommitted, and unfaithful. Now, this is a hard truth, but it is a truth. We are a town of blackbird believers. We flock from one place to another. To a great measure, the church in Tallahassee struggles because of that. If something doesn't happen and soon, when the real trials come in this town, we will not stand the test. Why? We won't stand the test because the majority of believers are about style points, not the substance of the word and faithfulness to God, regardless of what it takes. Now, having said that, I intended to bring a final sermon for my Fixer Upper series, and the final sermon was to be Fix Up My Church. But when I began to work on it, I realized that you can't fix up a church with one sermon. You can't fix up a church with a hundred <coughs> sermons. We have to dig to the core of what's going on in the church. We have to make some fundamental changes in how we think about this wonderful gift that God has given us, this gift of the <coughs> local church. And to that end, I want to begin this series that I've titled what was going to be just the message, and that is Fix Up My Church. There will be seven messages in the series, each with a theme for you and me to think about, and I'm I'm hoping that you'll go away with one thing to think about during the week. My sincere hope and prayer is that that all of us will fall in love with God's local church a deeply sincere and committed love to God's church. In the book of the Revelation, seven churches were selected to be addressed. Each of these churches were real churches with issues both positive and negative that would model the church for all ages or until Christ returned. We're going to look at all seven of these churches and we're going to be challenged by what their need was or what their strength was. And hopefully we can be corrected and convinced as to how we might make a change at the church located at 3000 North Meridian Road. The first church is the church at Ephesus. And basically the Lord said to them, all you need 
<clears throat> is love. Revelation 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those <clears throat> who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're, you are enduringly, patiently, and patiently bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> now, just so you understand, these letters are written to the angels of the churches. And just so you'll understand, the angels of the churches are the pastors of the churches. That sounds so good, doesn't it? <clears throat> Think about it. Pastor Ray, the angel of the church. First he gives, Jesus gives, props to the church. Now to those of you who may not own a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, props means proper recognition. Jesus gives proper recognition to the church for some things they had going there at Ephesus. The Ephesian church had it right, first of all, in matters of holiness, they had it right. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here's what I like about this church. This church was a hard-working church. If you looked at the church bulletin, you'd probably see a lot of activity and probably a lot of outreach. I think most of us would be attracted to a church like this. There's something else about the church that is even more attractive. The Ephesian church or the church at Ephesus was a no-nonsense church with no tolerance for evil, yet they had a personal patience as a church. If you attended services in this church, <clears throat> here's what you'd expect. You'd expect to hear hard-hitting preaching every Sunday. You wouldn't expect some guy to stand up and, and read from a magazine or a quarterly. You'd expect some guy to stand up and bring the thunder. You'd expect hard preaching uh, in a church like this. On, they put on trial <clears throat> what was that which was brought to the church by anybody claiming to be a messenger of God. They didn't just automatically embrace somebody because they said, hey, I'm an apostle or I'm a disciple or I'm a preacher or I'm this. They were very <clears throat> careful about this. Those of you whose gift is prophecy, you can see <clears throat> the black and white of things. You'd really love this church, especially this aspect of the church. Here's a church that would not stand for the taint of heresy. 
they would not allow themselves to be tainted by any heresy whatsoever. And we're going to see more about that later. What is important is to see that Jesus commended this aspect of the church. He said, I commend you for these things. He commended them for something else as well. Not only were they a holy church, but they were hurting. Here were some people that had some hurts in their lives. Verse 3, I know you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This church lasted through some pretty hard times. He said, I know that you've had some hard times. However, you are really determined, and I really like that. Now, let me give you a little perspective on this church. This, This will be interesting to you. At the time of this writing, this particular church, the church at Ephesus, was about the same age as this church, about the same age of North Florida Baptist Church, about the same age. So if you can project yourself back to the time of this writing and uh, when Jesus is speaking these words uh, through the prophecy of the Revelation, uh, you can say, all right, there was a church that was about like our church, at least in, in age. And even though there were times of hurting, they had not forsaken the church. They were, they were strong. They had <clears throat> stayed strong. The Lord commended their faithfulness. The Lord commended their ability to, to stay strong even when the atmosphere around them wasn't so friendly. I mean, they really <clears throat> were to be commended in that. And this is one of the areas where we in the church of Tallahassee, not necessarily North Florida Baptist Church, not necessarily you, but the church in Tallahassee, it could be you and it could be our church, But the church in Tallahassee, the general body of believers in this town, we need to strengthen our ability to deal with hurting. There's something within the borders of Leon County that wants to cut and run at the first unpleasant sign. There's something within the borders of Leon County that wants to give up as soon as the new wears off or as soon as there's any issue whatsoever. Now, that's not a church issue that's a Tallahassee issue. It happens in restaurants. It happens all the time. You see a restaurant started, and you can't get in that restaurant. <clears throat> you see that restaurant two years or two and a half years later, and the FBI can't find a customer to go in there at noon. <clears throat> it's just that way in Tallahassee. Our town is extraordinarily fickle. It's that way in businesses. It's, by the way, some of you say, how dare you criticize our town? This is my town too. 23 years been paying taxes in this town. 23 years. So I'll say what's true. And that is true. It, it's very difficult for, <clears throat> for churches and businesses and restaurants and, and on and on it, to stand the test of time. There are too few who demonstrate what the Ephesus church demonstrated, and that is the ability to just tough it out. And let me just tell you, folks, there's trouble in life. There's trouble in every part of life. There is no such thing as a trouble-free life. There's no such thing as a trouble. Here's what Jesus said. In this world, you'll have trouble. There's no such thing as a, a life where there's not going to be any trouble. 
And if you let trouble get you off course, then the truth is that you're going to spend more time off course than on course because there's a lot of trouble in life. There's a lot. If you, if you became a Christian to escape any difficulty, then that was a bad buy because Christianity does not escape you from difficulty. It's tough, and it's going to be tough. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Jesus commends the believers who can endure hurting and continue to serve faithfully. Here's one more thing that he commended the church for, and this is a little bit of a surprise, and you'll have to, we'll skip down to, I think, uh, a later verse for this. He commended them for a certain measure of hatred. I know that sounds wrong, but that's what he did in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I don't know who the Nicolaitans were, but I'll tell you this. I don't want to be them because Jesus hates them. I don't want to be them. He said, you hate them, I hate them. We're together on this. Today's church likes a lot of tolerance. We like to to be tolerant. And, And there are some things that God hates that, quite honestly, He expects us to feel the same way about it. He expects us to despise what he despises. We live in a politically correct world. We are afraid to hate anything, including sin. Well, Pastor, I didn't think you were supposed to hate people. This this is not about people. This is about what we should hate. And we should hate heresy. We should hate the sins that God hates. They hated the work of a sect called the Nicolaitans. Now, again, I'm not sure who they were, but I'll tell you this, Jesus hated them, and so did the church at Ephesus, and that was the right thing. We're just afraid to hate sin today. We're afraid that it's going to label us as intolerant. We're afraid that somebody on a liberal uh, media uh, uh, outlet, whether it be social media or the the news media, we're afraid that somebody is going to make fun of, of us being intolerant of certain sin. We're just afraid of that. We're afraid that we're going to be labeled as incorrect or that if we have a feeling about a certain sin that it might hurt us in our job career. It's real silent because that's real true. Did you know that? It's really true. Jesus never hated sinners. He loved sinners. We shouldn't hate sinners. We should love sinners. But he makes it very clear that he hates sin, and we should hate sin. The Bible says that to us, sin should be exceedingly or greatly sinful. We shouldn't look at it lightly. Here's a passage every believer should appreciate. It tells us something of the kind of sin that we should set ourselves against. There's more than these seven things, but if you want to you want to see something that ought to stiffen your resolve, here are seven things that the Lord despises. Here you go. In Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things that the Lord hates. Now, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. Let's just stop right there a minute. Haughtiness. Little nose up in the air. Little, well, that's what I said. A little, who are you to question me? little of that. 
Well, my child's not going to go to school with those children. Little, little of that right there. The kind where the people that drown in a heavy rain. God hates it. He's saying, well, he didn't actually mean hate. He did. He hates it. There's six things. I, I can't stop at each one, but I'd like to. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. <clears throat> Next time you catch one of your kids in a lie, share with them how, how God feels about that. Jesus wouldn't be happy. Oh, no, sweetheart. Jesus would hate that. And hands that shed innocent blood. Cutting off heads because people believe in Jesus Christ. God hates that. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Did you hear what they said over there at that church? I cannot believe it. Oh my goodness. He said, well, that's just a little innocent. No, see, that's, that's listed on the big seven things that God hates. And there's got to be, we have got, I don't mean that we need to walk around, you know, academy sports and say, I hate that right there. I wouldn't buy that brand if you paid me to. I hate it. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about having a deep understanding resolve to despise the sin that Jesus despises. I mean, absolutely. So there you have props to the church at Ephesus for their holiness, their faithfulness, and their backbone. I like it. I like that church. Let's all join. The hot light's on. Let's go to that church. It's cool. Well, hang on just a minute. There's some problems with the church. There were props for the church, but there's some problems with the church. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. These words are much different from what Paul had written to them. Paul had written to them too in Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul wrote that, but then Jesus said, you know what my beef is with you? You have left your first love. And that just shows you right there how that we can perceive something and God sees it completely differently. The Apostle Paul said, I like the way you have a love in your church. And Jesus said, you don't have a love in your church anymore. How can we reconcile this? Well, let's talk about it. Two questions. First of all, what love did they have? What did they still love? In both of these passages, the word for love means the deep kind of love that God has for people. At Paul's writing, they had a love and they were practicing it. But now Jesus says that they have abandoned the love that they had at first. What's up with that? What's the problem with that? Why'd they abandon that love? Well, they had a, a love patterned after the love of God. It was an old-time religion love. Let's, let's talk to you. Three things. First of all, they love God. That's what they love first. They love God. There's a love for God 
that should be natural, visible, ongoing, unashamed, life-changing, calm, blessed, on and on it goes. We should have a genuine love for God. Now, when you fall in love with somebody, it changes your life. When you fall in love with somebody, you think about them a lot. When you fall in love with somebody, your way is altered. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him enough that it alters the life that other people see in you? People in love just have a different way about them. What is it about your life and mine that can be seen and, and people look at us and they'll say, well, I'll tell you one thing about them. They love Jesus. You know that guy in town that, that, in fact, he's in Republican Club with us, and I can't think of his name right now, but the guy in town that's got the air conditioning company, and he used to paint the, the FSU thing on the top of his head, the bald-headed guy, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, y- y'all, y'all, surely you've seen that guy on TV. Uh, he's, he's got the FSU, he does it, doesn't do it all the time, but on game day he'll have the FSU logo painted on top of his head. Now there's something I can tell you about him. He loves the Seminoles. He absolutely loves the Seminole. People who love things show it. There's nothing wrong with loving the Seminoles. But is everything right with loving for God? Not only that, they love their church. I've just said it in this town. We love the Seminoles. We love the Gators or some other team. Because we think that we have to have a team. In Tallahassee, you have to have a team. And what's funny is that people, if they find out you're a Seminole fan and they're not, they feel like they got to tell you what their team is and they feel like it needs to be like, (laughs) you know, I, I may have on a Seminole shirt at the golf course and somebody goes, go Sooners. Okay. Hook of horns. All right. Go Gators. All right, now you got a fight on your hands. But we do. We love our, I mean, some of you who who do not know the difference between a quarterback and outback have a team. Because you live in Tallahassee and you got to have a team. In the fall, we worship at Dope Campbell Stadium. You know that. Some of you can tell me the starting roster of, of this year's team at, uh, uh, for the Florida State Seminoles, but you have no idea who the 12 disciples are. Why is that true? It's true because we love what we love. We don't love what God loves. God loves the church. And do you know how much he loves the church? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how much he loved the church. We have left what we once loved, the love of God, the love for the church. By the way, the love for people in the church. When's the last time you had any fellowship with people in the church? Hey, y'all come over to the house or let's go get something to eat or whatever. Today, Today we, are, we, we beat feet for the parking lot and get out of here. And, and I mean, that's, we just don't, we don't have that sharing love. Here's the other thing, love for the lost. 
The church at Ephesus was preaching the truth, living holy lives and putting up with no nonsense. But they had lost the love of what God loves first. And what does God love most? God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I believe they lost their love for the lost. I mentioned that I went to the parade of homes yesterday, and I, there was one house where the people were living there. I felt a little uncomfortable, but uh, just walking into somebody's house like that. But the people, they agreed that this would be on the parade of homes and so on. So <clears throat> the people were living there. And uh, a couple of about my age, and, and I, I began to talk to the uh, <clears throat> people. I was talking to the lady, and she said, I met my husband after I led him to the Lord back in 1971, or when I led him to the Lord in 1971. Man, alive. It's been a long time since I've heard somebody just say that. I led him to the Lord back in, that's how I met my husband. That's a love for the lost right there, literally. What happened to the church at Ephesus? What happened to us that, that we that is the church in Tallahassee and maybe our church and certainly some of us, that we no longer love God, the church, or sinners as we could or should. Why did they abandon their first love? What did they abandon and why did they do it? Well, by the time of the writing of this part of the Revelation, the believers in the Ephesian church were second and third generation Christians. Remember the church was about the age of this one. We've already talked about that. In, in, uh, this, in the words of B.B. King, who we lost this week, the thrill is gone. That's what happens sometimes in second and third generation believers. The thrill is gone. They grew up with it. They grew up in the church nursery. They grew up uh, going to VBS. They grew up in Sunday school. They just grew up with it. And because they grew up with it, they're just used to it. And the thrill is gone. The thrill is no longer there. Amazing grace to them is not an experience like it was the first generation believer. There are people in this room, you are first generation believers. You're the first person to be saved in your family. You're the first person to trust Jesus Christ. You're the first person to know what it means to be a born again believer. And to you, there's a different kind of thrill with salvation than the second and third and fourth generation believers. I'm a second-generation believer. My father was a first-generation believer. And sometimes it's just not the same thing. You know what the challenge is? The challenge is to keep the freshness of God's way, truth, and life awake in generations of the future. That's the challenge. With a huge church dropout rate, and we just had senior, uh, we just recognized some seniors, with a huge church dropout rate among young people who graduate from high school, clearly we are not keeping it fresh and real in their lives. But we give them everything that they could want. <clears throat> they have youth programs, T-shirts, music that they like. We give them everything, everything. But the key is not necessarily what we do, but what you, the parents, do. 
It is up to <clears throat> you. If, if you do not give them a zeal and a love that emits from your own life, they will do as young people <clears throat> have been doing for decades and continue to do. They will lose their love for the Lord and for His church. They may go for a while to a really cool place, but eventually <clears throat> the hot light will go out at the really cool place and they will cut all ties with places of worship. All ties. Years ago, <clears throat> the pastor, the former pastor of the First Baptist Church downtown said to me one day, <clears throat> and, and this is not an indictment of that church and because I don't know that our church is any better. <clears throat> he said to me one day, he said, you know, Randy, my problem is we have a really good program in, in college, and, and then when they graduate from college, we can't get them to keep coming to our church. He said, I, <clears throat> I don't know what it is. I said, well, I do. He said, what is it? I said, well, when they're babies, you put them in the nursery, rightly so. When they're children, you have them in children's church, rightly so. I said, I bet you've got a teen church at your church, don't you? So that they go to Sunday school and then during church service they got a teen church. He said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And, he, and I said, you know what else? I bet that there is a college church during the service while the rest of the church is having uh, uh, what is to you the regular church service, there is a college church. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, I'm going to tell you something. By the time they get to, to you and the service that you're in, they can't stand it. They, they, I mean, it's, it's been Burger King for them the whole time. They've had it their way. Boom, boom. And that's what they thought that church is. Having it my way, having it my way, having it my way, having it my way, having it my way. And then all of a sudden they step one day into a, the, the place where the, the believers were in, in the general body and <clears throat> all of a sudden everything wasn't catered to them and, and it snapped their heads back. I said, Wow. This is church? And so somebody figured out, hey, we can still do youth ministry. And so they started a youth ministry church. And so that's, that's how that's going. And, and here's, here's what's happening today. And, and, and young people, listen to me. I love you. I'm not, I'm not down on you. Trust me, I'm not down on you. But what has happened is that, that the church has given you the wrong idea as to what it really is. The church has given you, and, and guys like me, preachers, have given you the wrong idea as to what it really is. And we're willing to do anything for you to make us think you're, for you, for us, excuse me, for you to think that we're cool. We'll do anything. You know, if the trend is Speedos and flip-flops uh, preaching, there, I'm here to tell you there are churches that will preach like that. Say, are you serious? I'm dead serious. Because we have, let you, we have let you think that what church is is about having it your way. Now, please understand, I'm yelling at me. I'm not yelling at you. You get that, don't you? It's my fault. It's not your fault. It's my fault. I'm the one that's done this, and people like me. And, and parents who've just given in and said, you know what? I mean, as long as they're going somewhere, that, that is not the right answer. 
It is not the right answer because I'm here to tell you, especially in Tallahassee, that cool warms up and it's no longer cool. All right, so how do we stop this? I guess I better get on. Procedure for the church. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what he said? All you need is love. Go back to loving me. Go back to loving the church. Go back to loving the lost. Jesus challenged the Ephesus church to remember how far they had fallen, to repent of it, to turn around, and go back to what they once knew. Now here's what that means to you and me. Go back to loving Jesus. Just go back to love. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing. It's worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. I don't know that song. I don't want you to know the song. I want you to know the sentiment. I want you to love Jesus. Love him. Jesus isn't cool. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. You don't get to decide whether Jesus is cool or not. He's Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you what, right now, I could have me a slobbering, running, Pentecostal holiness fit right now, just over loving Jesus. Amen? We all should be able to. Go back to loving his church. Go back, go back to families. Go back to making his church, Jesus' church, the epicenter of your life and family. When my boys were little, I'd get up on Sunday morning and I'd wake them up and I'd say, hey boys, it's the best day of the week. What's Sunday? What day is it? And they would say, church day. You say, do they still love church to that degree? No, they don't. Just being real honest with you, no, they don't. But I'm going to tell you this. Had I not trained them that Sunday was the best day of the week, they went, I don't know that they'd love it at all. Because there's this dilution factor. In second and third and and fourth generations. It means an overriding commitment to his church. Like you're committed to anything or anyone that you truly love. And it's not a secret. It doesn't involve styles of music or what the preacher wears. Or how many guitars there are in the church. It has to do with you and your personal commitment and love for God. So what if you don't do this? What if you say, well, that's a good sermon, preacher. But just not for me. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. Here's what Jesus said. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this was just for that church, right? No, no, no. The, the truth is that Jesus said, he who has an ear let him hear what the 
the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me close with this. This is for every parent, grandparent, everybody with children in the nursery today or in children's church, even our teenagers. This is for the teens and the college students and the singles and the married. This is for those who have been in church a very long time and for those who have found it recently. If we don't find our love again, our children, our grandchildren, our friends and neighbors may never found what we found, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life.